Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by two of the four editors of Good Reasons to Run, Women and Political Candidacy. This book was published in 2020 by Temple University Press and is a really fascinating and rich discussion of women, mostly in the United States, and their decisions around running for public office. Today, I'm joined by Rachel Bernhard and Miria Holman, two of the four authors or editors who are joined by Shauna Shames and Don Langan Teal, um, who edited this excellent book. And I'm going to start by asking Rachel and Miria to tell us a little bit about themselves as well as their co editors um, and how they came to this particular project, thinking about how women think about and decide to run for office. Thank you for inviting us on, Lily. Um, This book has been in the making for a few years now. Um, The co-editors all met, I guess, um, in about 2017 at the Midwest Political Association Conference. And uh, we were talking about the fact that we felt like we didn't have a good go-to resource that was looking at women's decisions to run for office. And if you'll recall, this was during a period of time after the 2016 election where women's candidacies were surging. And many of us felt like, you know, we just didn't know what to say. There were a lot of explanations existing in the political science literature that focused on things like the socialization of women, that women were just kind of conditioned not to run for office, that um, focused on uh, factors like women's sort of aversion to running for office. And none of those explanations, um, we felt, gave us a really good understanding of, of what was going on. And there was clearly a lot of emotion and a lot of women inspired to run. And so we uh, decided to put our heads together and put out a call for contributions and just got back an amazing series of submissions. Um, as, as we'll talk about today, they cover all different parts of uh, the existing work on political ambition in the context of gender. Um, so the different editors uh, all have different areas of expertise. Um, Shauna Shames, for instance, has uh, worked extensively on ambition amongst young people and intersectionality of ambition by race and gender. Um, I will let Miria speak for herself since she's here. And um, Dawn Teal is our resident comparativist. Um, and she's done a bunch of work on the political economy of gender in particular. So uh, this group of people were um, really motivated to try and understand what was going on in the wake of the 2016 election with women's increased candidacies. And uh, that is where this project began. We also really were interested in this idea that uh, we could potentially uh, flip the script 
a lot of the literature on political ambition talks about why women don't run for office and all of the barriers that are in place. Uh, but despite all the barriers that are in place, there are a large share of women that run for political office and run for office across all different levels and for very different reasons. And so we wanted to have uh, a resource that was available that thought about this, not from the perspective of everything that's wrong with the world, but potentially some of the things that are right with the world and some of the things that really motivate uh, women to run. I came to this project uh, thinking a lot about political ambition from sort of the individual psychological level. What are the reasons why uh, women might be interested or not uh, in running for political office? And what are the things that we can do to try to convince more women to run for political office? And it was really exciting to join this team of editors, but also this really amazing set of authors that, that we ended up with across our 18 chapters of this book uh, that represent this just really rich and deep uh, bench of individuals that are thinking about political ambition. And in the introduction, you talk about the fact that this came together um, in a sort of conference setting beyond the, the Midwest political science um, discussion that you, you talked about in 2016. 2017 that was not just academics, but it also included people who were working in terms of candidate recruitment, party development. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that sort of face-to-face um, -face experience translated also into the book? Absolutely. Um, it was a really amazing experience. So uh, Don Teal was able to organize a conference in tandem with uh, uh, pen where she is located and uh, brought together uh, both practitioners and academics. So uh, we invited all of the uh, academic authors who were making contributions. And then we also um, invited a number of uh, practitioners from organizations that are broadly uh, political in nature and broadly aimed at uh, encouraging women to run for office. And that's a really diverse set of uh, individuals and groups. So um, everything from folks from the Barbara Lee Foundation um, to Ready to Run to uh, Emerge to the Lupe Fund, um, all sorts of different organizations. And the reason that we wanted them there is that um, some of our impetus for this book, as Maria said, was that we knew that people um, outside of academia were already working extensively on recruiting women to run for office. And we wanted our authors um, both to have the benefit of their experience, but also to really have the opportunity to share their research and, and have a live conversation about what was known and what was not known in this field. Um, one of the challenges, of course, in academic publishing is that often we tend to want to speak to other academics. There are a lot of incentives to do that. Um, but this was just such a, a pressing issue that uh, we wanted to make sure that everyone was included in the conversation to the best of our ability. And uh, Miria is welcome to correct me if I'm wrong about the numbers, but I think we ended up having about 65 uh, people in attendance in 
the conference, uh, about 30 of whom were practitioners and a um, uh, little over 30 who were um, many of the authors and contributors to the volume. Um, so this, this volume went through a sort of unusual process as a result where um, when we met in our groups, these parts that you see within the books, um, the practitioners accompanied us. Um, so they divided themselves up to some extent by areas that they felt their organizations worked on or that were relevant for them. So for instance, you know, did they work on supporting Black women who are running for office? Well, uh, then they might have ended up in the group on who runs, or they might have ended up in the group on um, obstacles to running, what we named Why Not Run. Uh, and that way they could really uh, interface with the authors directly and say something like, you know, is there any research on this? Can you tell us about this? Well, that's not what I see when I'm working uh, in the field on my issues. And um, what that meant was a sort of extended timeline for the book because our authors needed to respond directly to those practitioners. But we hope that the result is something that is useful, not just to other academics as, as a sort of compilation, but that also really includes the the insights and the benefits of that dialogue with practitioners in the field. We also think that this uh, provides a, a volume that uh, is much more accessible for use in the classroom, uh, that this involvement of the voice of practitioners, I find uh, really brought a richness to the chapters and the discussions that sometimes is absent from some kinds of academic work. Uh, and as a result, uh, you know, when, when I have taught gender and politics over the last uh, year and a half, I have assigned some of these chapters as works in progress to my students, and they really are interested and, and want this type of information, um, particularly within the context of uh, most of our students are not going to go on to be political scientists or academics, but many of them are interested in working in campaign organizations or working within the campaign structure. And so uh, we hope that this volume provides an opportunity for, for undergraduate students also to be able to access a, a wide range of information about women running for office. And in reading it, it it's certainly a very accessible volume um, in, in the sort of dialogue within the, the chapters themselves. Um, and, and so my hats off to the editors and contributors for making it a, an accessible volume that as students and others, um, can, can sort of read and understand, um, quite easily. Um, but I wanted to ask you about the sort of central concept that um, the the sort of the volume itself um, is structured around this idea of political ambition um, and how that figures into these questions around gender, um, running for office, um, ambition as something that propels people or an abstract concept that some people have and some people don't. Um, so if uh, you could sort of speak to this broader concept and theme that runs through the entire structure of the book. Yeah, thank you. Um, so as you already, I, I think, summarized, Lily, uh, there's a long history of work on political ambition. And I think the, 
big intervention that we are trying to make here. I don't want to resummarize all of those uh, extensive works on political ambition is to say that it's not static, um, at least in the case of women, which is the focus of our book here. Um, many of uh, the existing explanations, like for instance, some people are just born with some innate level of ambition or even things like gendered socialization, as I mentioned earlier, that women are just kind of conditioned not to run and and by the end of their impressionable years, they're just no longer really interested in running. None of those were able to speak to this phenomenon that emerged in the wake of the 2016 presidential election. And so we hope that if readers take one big idea away from the book as a whole, it is that women's decision-making process about running for office is really contextual. They think in terms of how it will affect other people in their lives. They think in terms of the local environment. Are they going to have the support of party leaders? Are they in a district that they feel is favorable to them? Um, And they're going to take into account where they are in their own lives. So do they have young kids at home, for instance, um, who they are trying to care for? Do they have financial responsibilities? Are they the breadwinners in their household? Um, And so what we feel this does is both um, question some of this earlier literature that suggests that it's either static or just kind of permanently declining. Um, And and that in turn, of course, um, has put a burden on practitioners. One of the things we talk about in this volume as well is the heavy role that nonprofit organizations have to play in the recruitment of women. And a lot of that is due to this existing belief that you just have to ask women over and over and over in order to convince them to run. And what we hope this book does is suggest, well, there are a lot of factors that might prevent someone from saying yes, even if uh, they do want to run, even if they are asked. And similarly, there are a lot of factors that might motivate women to get in the ring without being asked. For instance, feeling like their communities will suffer if they're not um, uh, able to get involved. So our, our hope is to really provide that richness and um, to create a takeaway that says ambition isn't static, it's contextual for women. The other big thing too that uh, I think is really important that this volume speaks to within the context of political ambition is that uh, several chapters sort of push back against this idea that women are somehow not strategic political actors that we sort of take this idea often in political science when we're evaluating uh, gender and the behavior of political actors that men, it's okay if men are strategic all the time, but women need to be these self-sacrificing, compassionate, caring people that are always thinking about other people and they're always placing themselves within the community. That's sometimes true, but that's also sometimes true for men. And many of our chapters sort of push back against this and really emphasize the idea that women that enter politics are savvy political actors that are engaging in decision making and deciding to run within a context where they think that they're going to be successful or they're going to be able to get to some goal that they're really interested in. And so I'm, I'm really satisfied with the whole group of, of chapters, of, for example, Heather Anderson's chapter on the geography of, of ambition. I think really gets at this idea that 
when women decide to run for office, they're doing so fully aware of the environment that they're running. And and so I wanted to sort of take you all through the sections of the book because they're really clearly laid out in in groupings that um, sort of get to some of these questions about what do we think we know um, and and what is actual actually going on out there with regard to women running for office. And so the first part of the book is this question of who runs. Um, and I and I found this to be particularly interesting. And again, it gets at this question of political ambition, but it also gets at the question of, you know, does class play a role? Does education play a role? As Rachel noted, does where you are in your life play a role? Um, so can you sort of go through um, an overview of the part one section? Who runs? Yeah, absolutely. Um so this section, um, I think in some senses, uh, it, it sort of previews all of the other sections. Um, so one of the challenges of writing the book is, of course, these are really interconnected chapters and none of them stand alone. But what we were hoping to do in this book is just give people a lay of the land. Um, what's happening with elite women? What's happening with Republican women? So uh, Malaga Oaks chapter, for instance, um, focuses on uh, Republican women who over the last several years have really been um, much less likely to run than uh, women across the aisle on the Democratic side. Um, and so each of these chapters take um, some, some issue, something uh, that we would think of as sort of a natural um, feeder or, or pipeline to running for office, um, like involvement in um, local parties or um, getting involved with appointive offices like Karen O'Connor and Ali Yanis's chapters, um, <clears throat> and uh, just tries to tease out what do we know right now, what seem to be some of the important explanations for why some of these groups are running much more often than others. Um, and as you mentioned, Lily, um, I think um, there, there are really clear um, issues of intersectionality here. Um, party is an obvious one that I mentioned already. Uh, race is clearly another, um, which Jamil Scott, Kesia Dickinson, and Pearl Dow take a look at in their chapter on Stacey Abrams. Um, <clears throat> and, and in the chapter that I have written um, with my co-authors, Shauna Shames, Rachel Silverman, and Don Teal. Uh, we take a look at this issue of sort of household political economy. So, you know, are, are women in a position financially to be able to run? Do they have dependents who they are supporting? Um, and we think that all of these chapters make um, kind of nice short uh, updates to a lot of this literature on political ambition to say, you know, there, there are important pre-existing factors here. What do we know about the state of them now in, in the 21st century, not just in the, you know, 1960s when this field of political ambition was really starting off and not even in, you know, the 1980s and 1990s when there was this big surge of literature looking at issues like socialization, structural obstacles, um, so some of the things we find, I think, are, are familiar stories, but 
some of them, I think, also speak to uh, longer running issues. And uh, we'll talk about that more, I think, in one of the future parts. The other thing, too, that uh, I think is is really an interesting contribution of this book, and here I'm putting on my uh, local politics hat, is that uh, we have information on women running for a, a wide set of different offices that so much of, of political ambition discussions have been around and rightfully so, these are important offices around uh, the number of candidates that run for Congress, for example, or the number of candidates uh, even that run for gubernatorial office or state legislative office. But we also have hundreds of thousands of other offices that people can run for in the United States, ranging from local level offices to uh, these sort of pseudo political offices, for example, uh, being appointed to a position or, or trying to t- trying to get appointed to a position. All of this tells us a lot about the state of political ambition in the United States, but because of data concerns, because of who has studied political ambition, we often have not seen a really robust discussion of these other offices. So it was really nice to bring in some authors who thought sort of about a a broader and more diverse set of types of political ambition in the United States. And I found that this was a very clear sort of outline of some of the um, previous literature and possibly where some of it is shifting in our understanding of who is potentially um, running for office and, and again, getting at why they may or may not choose to run. Um, And so the next section obviously is this question of, why run? This is a terrible thing to do. It's just awful. <laughs> Your entire life is upended and you could lose. So why do people do it? Particularly women who seem sensible. Right, right. Um, and I, I think um, in some ways the existing literature on gender and ambition um, has taken that at face value, right? It's just said, okay, it's this horrible thing, then, you know, why would anyone run? But of course, the big question that a lot of earlier thinkers have circled around is, but men do run, despite the fact that presumably, you know, we're all looking at this with the same understandings of, for instance, are we living in a democratic or Republican area? You know, do we have children at home to support? I mean, these seem like facts we should be able to agree on. And yet men and women come to very different decisions about it. And one of the things this section speaks to is um, women's different uh, motivations for running. So uh, the chapters look at, for instance, um, women's different policy concerns um, and how uh, policy motivated many of these women express themselves to be. Um, we look at, uh, as Maria was talking about with the, the last section, um, uh, the decision to run for local office and to get involved with advisory committees. So that's Rebecca Dean and Beth Ann Shelton's chapter. Um, that first one I should have mentioned is on um, ambition for office, women in policymaking is by Sue Thomas and Kathy Weininger. And then this last really cool chapter, uh, this is one of, I think, the really interesting and surprising 
findings in the book is um, a look at Teach for America and the effect of uh, serving in Teach for America on women's political ambition. And that's by Cecilia Moe and Georgia Anderson Nelson. Um, And they do a really um, interesting analysis in this chapter where they find that um, women who go through TFA are um, more likely in the end to decide to run for office and they express more ambition on a lot of these different sort of political participation measures. Do you want to get involved in a campaign? Do you want to advocate? Are you willing to do a bunch of these things? And they also find too that men's political ambition decreases slightly as a result of going through Teach for America. And that's one of those things that, you know, we just don't have the space in the book for them to get into in a really deep way, but that I think is just so fascinating and that I hope future research will be able to speak to. Um, You know, again, men and women can go through the same experiences and come away with really different takeaways and whatever is going on with that kind of immersive, uh, highly intensive skill building experience that is serving uh, with Teach for America does really different things for men and women. And they come out on the other side. Um, uh, In this case, women are are coming out really motivated to run and to serve. And um, there's just so much cool work in this area now about the effect of having women in office. Um, And I think this would be a good spot actually to, to mention Miria's other work as well. She's obviously worked on the impact of having women in office at at local and state levels. So I don't know if she wants to say a bit more about this section too. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think in, in general, one of the other, one of the strengths of this section or one of the strengths of the book that's illustrated by this section is also the diversity and methodological approaches that, that authors showcase. Uh, So just in this section, uh, we have everything from um, this really uh, carefully constructed field experiment that involves a, a massive survey out to everybody that was recruited by Teach for America, whether everybody that applied. And so this large N quantitative analysis. And then in uh, Dean and Shelton's chapter, we have this really rich qualitative evaluation following the career paths of a couple uh, of key uh, members of key boards in a local community. And that was really just exciting for me to be able to have these sort of very differing, equally important approaches side by side answering similar questions. And and so in this section, which I did find really fascinating, as you note, the the Teach for America information was not exactly what I expected it to be, but it it kind of gets at this idea of civic engagement. Um, I'm curious as about the next section, part three, why not to run, which of course is a lot of the previous literature on women running for office is all about the hurdles that they need to overcome or that the parties need to overcome for them to sort of come into a candidacy. So what did you find in this section that was both surprising and new, but also building on some of the previous literature? 
Yeah. Um, This is a section with some really uh, interesting chapters here. One of the ones that um, I think about um, super regularly, I mean, in a weird everyday, I think about it in the shower sort of way is Nadia Brown and Pearl Dow's chapter late to the party. Um, And in their chapter, they um, look at this weird phenomenon that has emerged on the Democratic side of the aisle, which is, of course, that African-American voters are extremely consistent Democratic voters, right? This is one of the big features of uh, 21st century partisan polarization. And yet at the same time, many of these candidates, particularly Black women, are um, not able to get serious consideration or support, um, especially in terms of financial resources from the Democratic Party. And so what we end up seeing on the Democratic side of the aisle, which if we just look at voters, we might imagine, wow, you know, it's this diverse coalition and, and Black folks are really represented. Well, they don't have equivalent representation and support in the leadership and often end up as, you know, campaign staff, uh, political consultants, et cetera, to um, Democratic candidates who um, are are you know, potentially white or um, do not come from those predominantly African-American democratic communities that these women are coming out of. Um, And so one of the things I like about it is that um, it is this useful intervention to say, just looking at at voters doesn't really tell us the whole story. Um, You know, women can seem like an integral part of the party's success. If we look at, um, you know, gender gaps in public opinion, for instance, we see that more women tend to vote Democratic and so on. Um, But that doesn't mean that all women are getting equal support. And even that communities that we might think of as being as central and integral to the success of a party, in this case, Black voters and the Democratic Party, doesn't mean that that will translate into leadership positions and support. Um, and, and all of the chapters in this section, I think, raise some of those questions. Um, Maria had already mentioned Heather Anderson's chapter, which is on the geography of candidate emergence. This is another really fascinating one that looks at women as strategic actors and, and um, does so in the context of what is the, the lay of the land, so to speak, right around them. Um, there's another great chapter by uh, Alejandra Jimenez Aldridge, Chris Karpowitz, Quinn Monson, and Jessica Priest um, that looks at um, political party recruitment efforts um, in particular, how they might diversify. And um, uh, Chris Bonneau and uh, Chris Kanthak have a great chapter on the 2016 election in particular. You know, what, what did women take away in the wake of? the 2016 election. And so all of these, I think, are um, really sort of fresh and updated looks at why women might end up not running for office or not appearing in leadership. So it's not just the same old stories as yesteryear, but, but I think a kind of fresh look at what's going on now. That, the, this, in my mind, I sort of think about this section as pushing back against the phrase that I've heard quite a bit. Um, and when you talk to sort of 
your friends and people that don't necessarily study this, they might say, well, if women would just, and, and then they fill that, you know, well, if women would just run for, if they just put their hat in the ring, right? That's like, or if, if black women are such supporters of the Democratic Party, why aren't they running for office? If black women would just run for office, then Democrats would support them. Or if party leadership would just recruit women, then women would run. Or if we just had good women role models, then we'd have more women running for office. And each of these chapters pushes back against that and says, well, actually, uh, <laughs> that's not that's not how it works. Again, I think each of these chapters also really reveals this underlying phenomena that women, when thinking about running for political office, understand what the environment is and understand that, for example, for Black women, that they shouldn't necessarily expect for consistent support from the Democratic Party, even as they have given the Democratic Party consistent support, right? So it's not this quid pro quo environment where they get some, they give something and they get something back. Or when we're thinking about women in being recruited as party leaders in, in the chapter on, uh, on whether or not political parties can diversify their leadership, uh, this focuses on women in Utah. Women in Utah look at political leadership in Utah and say, oh, uh, <laughs> haha, actually, I don't believe you when you say that you're interested in diversing your, diversifying your political leadership. So we have this, this really important information contained in here that women are looking at the political system and are, are open, their eyes are wide open, they have a clear vision, they understand what the lay of the land is, and it's totally and absolutely consistent with all of their values to say, no, I, I don't think I'm going to run for office in this particular environment. And I, I was particularly interested in the um, women's political ambition in the 2016 election um, and the the research that they found with regard to why women chose after that election to run. Was this a surprising outcome in terms of research that you saw as the chapters were coming in? Um, Maria, were you surprised by it? I, I feel like the wake of the 2016 election was just such a, a sort of numb, <laughs> shocking period of time for folks studying gender that I honestly am not sure that I could say <laughs> from memory now, like, how did I feel about this as we were seeing this evolve? So, I, I mean, I, I was not particularly surprised by this as somebody that studies gender and studied the 2016 election and studied Hillary Clinton. Uh, but I, I will say one of the things that I really liked about that chapter is that it pushed back against this narrative that we saw of like, oh, well, Clinton's loss is going to activate this broad set of voters that have never cared about politics before, right? And I think that this is probably something that we can all recognize of a sort of a consistent theme election to election is that each election, we think some broad set of voters that have never cared about politics before are going to be activated by this, right? Bernie Sanders is going to get young people in Oklahoma to turn out to vote, right? Like, ah, well, no, that's not actually what happened in Oklahoma for Bernie Sanders. And it's not what happened after 2016. We don't see that women 
that were not previous participants in the political process, then all of a sudden, like, look at Hillary Clinton's loss and say, oh, yes, absolutely, there's room for me. People care about my voice. If anything, we might actually expect that women would be, these women would become less interested. And again, that that is what uh, Chris and Chris find in this chapter, is that the election actually, in some ways, suppresses women's political interest. And so the next section is is a more of a combination of the academic and the practitioner side um, and understanding how a lot of these newer, some are newer than others, um, nonprofit organizations help women run for office. Um, and, you know, I, I've talked to students about organizations like Emily's List for a long time, um, but there are quite a few other organizations that are now involved in recruitment, um, training, and so forth. And this is not just in the United States. This is now a much more international kind of approach. Can you talk a little bit about this section of the book and the the role of nonprofits? Yeah. Um, so I'm going to get myself in trouble on air by picking a favorite child, which is really this section for me. Um, one of the things that was so fascinating about this section um, that's talked about a little bit explicitly in the chapters, particularly Jen Piscopo's chapter on candidate training programs in comparative perspective, is that for those of us who study American politics, it's just a no-brainer that you would look at these organizations, that you would study these organizations because they have been seen as so central to getting women running, right? Um, It's hard to think about women's political successes on the Democratic side of the aisle without Emily's List, as you mentioned. Um, And at the same time, uh, the U.S. is, of course, a, a self-nomination system where candidates get to choose whether they throw their hats into the ring. And so it makes sense by extension that these nonprofits have a big role to play. Um, and, and those nonprofits work at every different stage of candidacy. So, for instance, Kira Sambamatsu and Kelly Dittmar look at uh, Ready to Run, which is kind of a candidate training boot camp uh, type program that operates around the country. Um, Monica Schneider and Jenny Sweet Cushman uh, also look at campaign trainings in particular. um, What do people think politics looks like um, after going through one of these trainings? How does that change their perspective? Um, And then uh, as Rebecca Kreitzer and Tracy Osborne document, there's really big variation in how and where women are being recruited across states. Um, and so if you look at this with Americanist eyes, you think, well, of course we study these things. You know, that's what's getting women out there. That's what's um, helping them fundraise. That's what's helping overcome all of these different challenges that we document elsewhere in the book. Um, and then Jen Piscopo's chapter, I think, kind of sits you on your heels and says, well, wait, but a lot of these other contexts around the world are not self-nomination systems. And yet these candidate training programs for women are proliferating what's going on there. Um, and, and so this is why I think, um, you know, it was really important to us as Americanists to include some uh, comparativist work here because um, it's easy to see nonprofits as 
a core feature, defining feature, um, something we couldn't do without in order to get women's descriptive representation. And yet it's not really obvious what role those programs are playing. And um, as Piscopo describes, you know, sometimes they can have the effect in other contexts of trying to um, sort of paper over other kinds of problems with recruiting women for office. Um, So I really uh, love this section because um, I think it, it helps us question some of those baked in assumptions that we have that, uh, of course, all of these nonprofits will play a role. Um, And in particular, one of the things that I continue to think about and and hope that we'll see more work on is a thinking through what does it mean that women's descriptive representation in the United States depends so much on these informal institutions? You know, many, many of these organizations are not um, explicitly connected or or funded by political parties in our system. We have this very um, kind of informal pipeline, not in the sense that the organizations are informal, but in the sense that, you know, if, if these organizations disappeared, you know, if <laughs> Emily's List and all these other organizations went out of business tomorrow, it's not clear whether parties would be able to sustain their pipelines of women candidates. Um, so uh, this, as I said, you know, might get me into trouble for having a favorite section, but I just really love this section for that perspective. The, this section also for me uh, illustrates sort of the, the value of edited volumes. Um, in some ways, this uh, section represents a, a giant step forward in what we know about candidate training organizations. There just has not actually been all that much scholarship on candidate training organizations. And part of the reason is that a lot of that research, that the sort of the baseline research that is needed, for example, uh, Rebecca Kreitzer and Tracy Osborne's chapter, we need to start with the descriptive work before we can then say something uh, about relationships between things. And to a large extent, uh, most political science journals are very reluctant to publish purely descriptive work. And so to be able to offer an opportunity for authors to come together to provide some, some really sort of basic information that we need to have about women's candidate training organizations, both here in the United States and abroad, it is a, a really compelling reason for, for me to, to think about the value of edited volumes. And the final section of the book, of course, is something that's incredibly important in politics in general, but even more so in the United States, this question of money. And I know I've read over the years about women sort of reaching a level of parity with regard to fundraising um, with regard with in comparison to men. But your your work or the work in this volume also sort of highlights while there may be parity, it comes at a cost. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm interested to hear a little bit about the role of money and how it impacts women candidates and women choosing to run for office. Yeah. So the three chapters in this section, as you said, all focus on, uh, the role of money and, um, many of them, many of the authors in, in the section have of course worked elsewhere on this issue. So for instance, the beginning chapter on campaign donor networks by Michelle Swears and Daniel Thompson, these are, uh, two of the big names working on 
women's fundraising in the U.S. right now. And um, what they find is that um, for Democratic women, there is more support for them among uh, Democratic donors, you know, so so they kind of receive a, a boost or benefit in that sense. Um, <clears throat> and uh, especially among female Democrats, and they don't find this sort of gender affinity effect among Republicans and in particular Republican women, which sort of raises this problem of, you know, what what is going on with Republican women? What resources do those individuals need to get elected? And their chapter suggests, okay, this looks like uh, it's going to be a, a hurdle um, for Republican women still because they don't have that advantage, which I think will be really interesting to see in the 2020 election, as we're hearing in the news right now. Of course, there are more Republican women uh, running this year than have in the last several years. Um, so I think this chapter will be really relevant there. And then, you know, we go all the way around the world to uh, the case of Benin and uh, Martha Johnson's chapter. And what she documents here is that, um, you know, even in countries that have these sort of women's candidate training organizations, a lot of women are looking at these and participating in these and then saying, but you know what I need to run is money. I need money and logistical support and you know, kind of pump up music and uh, information on how government works and everything doesn't really fix uh, a lot of these bigger structural issues. um, And in particular, women's difficulty um, raising money because they don't have access to these networks. So, you know, knowing all the right people is kind of not sufficient if it's not accompanied by checks. Um, And then finally, uh, there's Jacqueline Kettler's chapter that is on um, paying it forward. And um, this looks at a really interesting phenomenon that I've observed in some of my fieldwork, which is uh, the phenomenon of candidates um, sort of donating to and endorsing other candidates um, and whether this generates kind of a, a diverse slate of candidates. And Um, So all the way through, you can see how influential it is to um, have support, um, particularly financially, though Kettler's chapter also looks at um, sort of holding up other individuals. Um, But the signaling of candidate to candidate contributions, I think, um, is kind of an understudied phenomenon in political science in general, because it's not super important from a dollar value perspective, but if women are coming in being seen as less qualified, as outsiders, as less experienced, whatever, then um, the role of uh, fellow candidates' endorsement through uh, some sort of monetary contribution might have an outsized role for women. Um, So this is a lively and growing area of scholarship, um, and I think all of these chapters um, give us some new things to chew on that uh, are, I think, especially interesting for the 2020 election as we go forward. This, this section also, for me, uh, really illustrates the, the uh, unique phenomena of something that we think of as a unique phenomena of money and politics in the United States, that it's not actually <laughs> just unique to the United States, that there are many other countries where the electoral system is really heavily dependent on candidates identifying some form of of financing 
And so Johnson's chapter on women running in Benin is, I think, just a, a really interesting look at the interaction between sort of candidate training organizations. There are quite a few uh, external organizations that she documents that are interested in trying to get more women to run for office, but them not necessarily understanding what the local system is and the importance of resources within that system. That in a sense, in essence, in Benin, you need to pay to get onto the ballot and women often don't have those resources. And so thinking about the ways that our, our knowledge of that has largely developed on studying women in the United States might apply to other environments is, is great, but also making sure that we place that deeply in those environments and we understand the specific electoral systems and challenges that women face in those environments. So this, this excellent book, and again, it's it sort of has a variety of audiences that it's pitched to in terms of students possibly candidates running for office, obviously scholars of women in politics, um, has, I'm sure, taken a lot of effort. But I'm curious to know what um, the two of you and your two other editors are working on now. Uh, Yeah, I think there's about 25 research agendas between the four of us. So (laughs) it's a good question. so uh, for my part, what I have been working on a lot um, is a kind of continuation of, of some of the themes of the book, in particular on the, the political economy of gender, um, some other work on women as breadwinners and thinking about, um, you know, which women are able to run and how that might intersect with uh, issues of, of class and household resources and, and that sort of thing. And then um, I have a, uh, another kind of separate strand of work that's not featured very much in this that is on appearance-based discrimination. So when we look at candidates, uh, what we think about them and who do we vote for? So that's things like, you know, on average, people express equal willingness to vote for women or men. But then when you take a look at who they're voting for, uh, they're voting for young, conventionally attractive women, you know, so. The, the pretty young things of politics, which doesn't really give me the sense that, you know, we're in this post-gender society, right? Even if everyone is uh, sort of equally willing on average um, to vote for uh, women and men. Um, Don Teal has a lot of work on um, women's suffrage. Uh, she has a book out relatively recently about that. And um, looking at um, some big sort of methodological issues of um, using historical data and ecological inference that I think is really cool. Um, Miri, I don't know if you want to describe yourself and, and Shauna in a... <laughs> sure. Yeah, so, uh, I, I've been uh, really digging into trying to think about uh, diversity within women who are running for office or holding office and a whole set of projects, uh, one of which which is with Rachel and another with Tiffany Barnes on thinking about occupation and what kinds of women run for office, what are their occupational backgrounds and what effect might that have on policy outcomes. Uh, So Tiffany Barnes and I have a piece um, in Legislative Studies Quarterly that came out this week on uh, looking at at women with, with what we call pink collar backgrounds, women that emerge from traditionally feminine occupations uh, like being a nursing assistant or a teacher, uh, and the effect of the that 
type of representation on uh, budget outcomes in state legislatures. Shauna is always working on something super interesting. Uh, so she recently uh, just published uh, a, a book that came out immediately sort of before this on women, uh, edited volume on women in uh, right-leaning parties. Um, and uh, she is also right now working on uh, a some really interesting uh, stuff that focuses on thinking about, um, in particular, uh, intersectionality, race, gender, and age. Uh, she has this amazing book that she wrote originally about these things, uh, but also sort of thinking about Generation Z and uh, new women running for office, what they look like, why they might not be interested in formal politics. And then finally, she's got this amazing book with, uh, with Amy Atchison, on dystopian fiction and what it can teach us about politics. That's really cool. And if you're interested in the Hunger Games or anything like that, I definitely recommend it. Thank you. Um, so when any of you all finish these books, will you come back on the New Books in Political Science podcast and talk to me about them, please? Absolutely, Absolutely Lily. Thank you. Um, it's been a pleasure today to talk to two of the four editors of Good Reasons to Run Women and Political Candidacy. Um, this is published in 2020 by Temple University Press. I assume we can all pick this up at the Temple University Press website, um, as well as wherever anybody else buys their books these days. Um, any brick and mortar stores either of you want to shout out to? Uh, in Davis, where I am, I would check out the Avid Reader and Logos Books. In New Orleans, please check out Octavia Books. All right. So thank you, Rachel Bernard and Miria Holman for joining me and um, also to Shauna Shames and Don Teal um, for your work on this excellent book, Good Reasons to Run. <laughs> <laughs>